What up, everybody? I'm Ed, and this is Current History. Remember back before the Rona struck, when for a second there, I totally thought we were going to go to war with Iran? There were a few hours between when it was reported that they had fired missiles at a base in Iraq with U.S. troops and when we found out that nobody had died, and I knew if one of our guys was on the porta potty at the wrong time and caught a missile, we'd be rolling troops in by sundown. But what's up with the U.S. and Iran as rivals? Why are these two groups always at each other's throats? Well, settle in, children, and gather around, because I'm going to tell you a story about a government fuck-up of yesteryear. Cut back to 1979, and a group of Iranian students have taken over the American embassy in the capital city of Tehran, cutting the chain on the gate and swarming in past the guards. Initially, the attack was planned as a peaceful sit-in, but it turned into an occupation. All of the Americans working in the embassy were imprisoned in the embassy building while the documents that they had hastily tried to shred and burn were patched back together. The embassy siege turned into a political disaster for the administration of Jimmy Carter, the former president who is most well known now for his work with Habitat for Humanity. Carter allowed the Shah of Iran to flee to the United States when his government collapsed in Iran. And part of the stated purpose of the students occupying the American embassy was to prevent what they most feared, the United States planning a coup that would put the Shah back into power. When Americans flipped on the news to see crowds chanting death to America and burning American flags, they were shocked. Why did this nation, half a world away, have so much hatred for us? Why would they think that the United States would attempt a coup to put the Shah back into power? If you guessed what is we probably fucked them over in the past, then you win today's daily double. Pew, 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 pew. The seeds of this disaster were not planted by Jimmy Carter in 1979. They were planted by Eisenhower at the end of the World War II era and the dawn of the Cold War in the 1950s. The president and advisors and intelligence operators who planted these seeds did not think that they were planting a disaster. They thought that their operation had been a stunning success, an early example of how effectively the United States can replace foreign leaders that they don't like. They thought they were protecting democracy from authoritarianism or communism, but in the process, they toppled a democratically elected government and Iran still has not gotten back to the political freedom they had in the 1950s. Today, we are going to explore the 1953 Iranian Revolution. We are going to talk about why it happened, how the United States got involved, and hopefully through this story we will illuminate why Iran still refers to the United States as the Great Satan. But first, a message from the closest thing I have to a sponsor. I will have you know that I have now made two entire dollars off of podcasting, which according to the dictionary makes me a professional podcaster. Ed Smith, professional podcaster. I'd also like to give a shout out to my girlfriend, Maddie, who requested that I record this for her drive home. So you go, girl. Ad break. Let's start with some context. In the 1900s, European nations were expanding their influence across the globe, seeking to turn spheres of influence and commercial ties into more and more direct control from Europe. The African continent had been conquered within the previous 50 years until nearly every part of it is a colony of Europe. The world has always been a dangerous place for a state trying to survive and grow, but generally the major players in any given area were pretty constant. 
Suddenly, these Europeans are showing up everywhere, planting flags and selling guns, which causes massive instability in the places that they visit. For Iran, the contest was between the British from their stronghold of India and Russia expanding southward from the recently conquered Caucasian mountain range. This competition took a back seat when the British, the Russians, and the French all allied together to counter the rising threat of the Germans leading up to World War I. When danger looms at home, it's time to quash the beef with states that you don't like but still need. So the British and Russian empires took a King Solomon approach and decided that they would just lop that bitch in half and each take a slice, with a little neutral zone in the middle that the government of Iran could run. A great compromise for these two European empires, but no one asked the Shah or literally anybody in Iran what they thought before carving their country up like a Christmas ham. This settles down the great power competition for control of Iran, until one month before the Shah's attack on the short-lived representative body, the Mahalis, in the summer of 1908. Remember, from the last podcast, the Mahalis, which are essentially the parliament, succeeded in getting an aging Qajar Shah to agree to a constitution limiting his power, but it had all fallen apart when his son, Reza Shah Qajar, took the throne and tossed an Uno reverse card on the constitution with the help of some Russian mercenaries. This both quashed any hope of the Iranian people controlling the power of the Shah, but it also meant that the Shah switched out the base of his power like Indiana Jones swiping an artifact. With one fluid motion, his power was no longer based on the support of powerful groups like the religious ulema, the merchant bazaris, or control of the military. Now, his power was based on the support of external powers, which only increased the growing trouble within Iran of foreign control of domestic government services. Anyone who thinks about this can understand why this would suck if you were a citizen. Imagine if every time your internet went out, you didn't just have to get jerked around on the phone by Comcast for an hour and a half, you had to call the government of Sicily. How much would they really care about a problem happening so far away and so outside of the core that they really care about? How responsive would they be if their business is hurting people on the ground, but only people that don't particularly matter to them? Now imagine that that is the system controlling every major service in your life, like providing food, water, and communications. Up until this point, there are political reasons to control Iran, but soon a whole new source of contention and power is discovered. Oil. During the summer of the Constitutional Revolution, a British explorer named George Reynolds was at the end of his rope in Iran searching for oil, funded by the rich British mogul William Knox d'Arkey. Hopefully, you recognize the name d'Arkey from that completely nuts agreement he made with Iran called the d'Arkey Concession. This agreement signed over everything but the kitchen sink of Iranian foreign and domestic control. This included a 1901 agreement with Muzaffar al-Din Shah for the sole oil rights to a gigantic swath of territory in Iran. The Shah thought he got a pretty sweet deal selling the rights to oil in a territory in which oil hadn't been discovered for a cool 20 grand and the promise of 16% of any oil profits. Now the Brits were sending people to consolidate their newfound gains, and to do this, they pick Reynolds, a self-taught geologist who already had expeditions to Sumatra under his belt. Reynolds and a ragtag group of explorers cruise across Iran in search of oil, 
but the whole thing was mainly turning into a pit that Darkey shoveled money into. By 1908, the expedition had eaten up half a million pounds with nothing to show for it. In May, Diarchy sent a telegram ordering them to stop work, fire everyone, and bounce with anything worth the cost to ship it back to England. But Reynolds chose the new phone who dis response. Reynolds is desperate at this point. To return home empty-handed after over four years of searching would be a crushing blow to anybody, much less someone who saw themselves as a mustachioed explorer extraordinaire. So he reports back to his men that telegrams can't be trusted, and essentially that if Darkey wants us to go home, he can come tell us himself. Then, at four in the morning, on May 26, he awoke to rumbling and shouting as oil shot above a derrick. Reynolds had struck the largest oil field ever found. The Anglo-Persian Oil Company was created to begin extraction in Iran. Oil was extremely important to the British, and Winston Churchill, before he was Prime Minister, was a Lord of the Admiralty, leading the charge of the British Navy from coal to oil-powered ships. Oil was significantly better ship fuel, but Britain had no oil on their home islands, nor in any of their far-flung empire. It's honestly impressive that they managed to take over so much stuff that didn't have oil. So you can understand that the British government was very excited about the discovery, and in 1913, Churchill convinces the British government to spend £2 million buying 51% of the Anglo-Persian Oil Company. Since they owned a controlling interest, the interests of the government and the interests of the company are one and the same. For the rest of the story, when we talk about the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, just imagine that as a big, friendly puppet. You know a puppet propped up on the throbbing boner Winston Churchill gets every time Britain oppresses someone who isn't white. From the turn of the century till the beginning of the First World War, the Anglo-Persian Oil Company is happily setting up shop in Iran. Initially, they set up shop on a small, swampy island off the coast of Iran called Abadan. The first oil pipeline to Abadan was completed in 1911, and the spice began to flow. Soon, the collection of huts and equipment in the mud had grown to the largest refinery in the world. The British developed it into a colonial enclave like any other, with fancy clubs and bars for them, and segregated slums without electricity or clean water for the thousands of Iranian laborers who operated the refinery. No Iranians were trained in the management and operation of the refinery. They were only allowed to do the dirty and dangerous labor. Remember this later on in the story when the British are whining and complaining about how poorly they're being treated by the Iranian government. When the First World War broke out in 1914, the oil produced from the refinery at Abaddon swept the Allies to victory with their vastly superior oil production. From the start of the war till the end, the refinery increased its output by 500%. Meanwhile, the Qajar Shahs in charge of Iran were happily getting screwed, receiving £47,000 in 1920 for their 16% of the company's net profit. The British had all kinds of fun ways to play with the books, and Iran tended to get far less than they should have. Since the British government partially owned the company, they also sold the British Navy oil for very cheap allowing them to rule the waves and crush German sea raids in the Indian Atlantic Ocean while still keeping the German Navy bottled up in port till the end of the war. 
1917, after three dreadful years of war, the Russian Revolution began, and when the Soviets consolidated power, they dipped from every Russian imperial interest beyond their borders, which meant pulling out of Iran. When the war ended, it seemed to be the perfect time for the British to sweep in and claim the country, but they were leveraged to the hilt from fighting the war, and were left in debt to the United States and incapable of pressing their advantage in Iran. So rather than establishing a protectorate over Iran, they went with a plan to take over the country on the cheap. Without consulting London, a British officer in Iran replaces the Russian officers of the Cossack Brigade with Iranians that were loyal to the British, and took over one of the only organized armies in the country from the Russians. Then, the British officer told the leader of that army, Reza Khan, that if he marched on Tehran, the British would let him have it. This British-sponsored coup ended the Qajar dynasty and started the new Pahlavi dynasty under the new Reza Shah. Reza Shah thought about what he wanted his new government to look like, so he looked around at what other recently free Muslim nations were doing, and saw Turkey's success at tossing out the Europeans under Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. Ataturk had declared Turkey a secular republic with him as the president, making mortal enemies of the religious leaders of Turkey. While Reza Shah considered forming a republic, the religious leaders of the ulema in Iran convinced him that a continuation of the monarchy was in both of their best interests. Shortly after taking power, he pulled some next-level bullshit to secure his power. He pretended to retire from government life, swearing off the job of president and returning to a small village to contemplate life. He also set it up so that while he was on his little staycation, he would be bombarded with people begging him to return to his position. Then the exiled former Shah tried to return and kickstart the Qajar Dynasty II electric boogaloo. What remained of the Mahalis were horrified by this potential backslide and offered Reza Shah the throne if he would return to power. And with that, the Pahlavi Dynasty settled into power and Reza Shah began his campaign of reforms. Reza Shah had served as a prime minister for three years under the last of the Qajar Shahs, and was supported by the constitutionalist faction in the hope that he would reform the nation and bring them into the modern era. He also had support from members of, of the religious leadership, the ulema, who supported constitutional reform. Reza Shah made the military a central focus, directing 40% of state expenditure to developing the army in 1920, and by 1930, he had an army of 100,000 men. Reza Shah was a reformer who based himself on the influential leader of Turkey, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. He reformed taxation, education, and state industries like rail and textiles. He reformed the legal code of the country, initially keeping in line with Sharia law, but in 1936, he abolished the religious courts, damaging the influence and power of the ulema. He also attacked the concessions that had been granted by the previous Qajar dynasty, abolishing treaties and re-nationalizing industries like the National Bank in 1930. In 1935, he directed foreign embassies to refer to the country as Iran rather than Persia. Reza Shah had a problem with how his country was getting screwed by the Anglo-Persian oil company, and in 1928 he ordered a minister to renegotiate the deal. 
Apparently, the dealmaker was a real Donald Trump, because all he succeeded in doing was getting dicked around by the British for four straight years. By the 1930s, Reza Shah had blown all of the goodwill he may have had with his ham-fisted reform process, and had alienated the constitutionalists and the ulema with his centralizing push. Iran had also found out that there is no prize for being the first to sign away your rights to your oil, and other countries got better deals than the measly 16% that Iran was getting. Turkey, under Ataturk, had thrown off all of his country's concessions, but Iran still had foreign hooks everywhere, courtesy of the Qajars. In his speech to rouse the military to participate in his coup, Reza Shah referred to the Qajars as, quote, the same treacherous elements who have sucked the last drop of the nation's blood. But now he was the vampire latched onto Iran. Reza Shah is an example of a modernizer and reformer who did not liberalize the country, but made it more autocratic. Like the Shah that would be deposed in 1979, Reza Shah thought that he could hold on to power indefinitely as long as he provided the people with a higher standard of living. But without political participation, it is hard for an autocratic ruler to know when they have stepped over a line in the sand and have begun to deeply upset the people, which could set off a revolt. For example, after the Shah banned the veil for women, members of the ulema gathered in a mosque to protest. Reza Shah ordered soldiers to assault the mosque, resulting in over a hundred worshippers being killed. This caused further protests, which was suppressed by further violence. Political expression of the people can be dangerous and unstable on its own, but the benefit of having it is it releases pressure through the political system rather than through violence and uprisings. Cracking down with violence is a game of whack-a-mole, where every mole you whack increases the pressure of the system and burns away any goodwill the people have for you. However, these brutal and autocratic actions he took did lead to meaningful reforms of the country, like the destruction of banditry that had plagued the Iranian hinterlands, as well as investments in infrastructure, education, and other government services. They just came at the price of the stamping out of opposition wherever the Shah saw it, from newspapers to labor organizations to religious protests. The European overlords were happy to let the Shah abuse his own people, as long as he didn't mess with the oil money too much. But it was their buddying up with the Germans that the dudes could not abide. Through the 1930s, Reza Shah was checking out fascism's butt as it walked by, and he wanted into the angry speeches and silly facial hair club. One of the state-operated newspapers in Iran said about the alliance that, quote, the cardinal goal of the German nation is to attain its past glories by promoting national pride, creating a hatred of foreigners, and preventing Jews and foreigners from embezzlement and treason, and that, quote, our goals are certainly the same. So this guy sucked. But the British were not a fan of Reza Shah's obvious interest in Nazism and feared losing a key jewel in the crown of the British Empire, as well as fearing the loss of a massive supply of oil. Iran joining the Axis would have hugely changed the Second World War, allowing Germany and possibly Japan to get the oil they needed without resorting to the extreme measures of oil anxiety drove both Axis partners to. For Germany, this might have meant a more capable invasion of Russia, or it could have removed the incentive to invade Russia before the capitulation of the British Isles. 
For Japan, oil from an Axis Iran would have removed the driving need to start a war with Britain and the United States before they had completed the invasion of China. For both primary Axis partners, access to Iran's oil would have given them breathing room to consolidate their power and control the territory they had before starting larger wars. Getting this oil anywhere it would have been useful would have been another matter. For Germany, it would have required the seizure of the Suez Canal and British-held Egypt, so their North African campaign would have had to work better. For Japan, they would have needed at the very least naval domination of the Indian Ocean, and preferably the conquest of India. If Japan hadn't been such absolute asshats to the people they conquered, and their Burma campaign in the east of India had been more effective, maybe they could have squeaked something out, but these situations were on the outer rim of conceivable possibility. Britain still ruled the seas through World War II, and even when things got a little shysty in the Pacific with the Japanese fleet, there was really no way for the Axis to consolidate a grip on Iran and access that sweet, sweet dinosaur juice that they needed to power all of their death machines. Point is, oil is super important, and Iran has a shitload of it. Reza Shah was beginning to worry about the possibility of Allied intervention, but didn't want to jeopardize Iran's connection with Germany, which was kicking ass up and down Europe at this point in the war. One of his closest advisors is his son and heir to the throne, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. Whereas Reza Shah was a soldier who had taken power from the Qajar dynasty with military force and foreign help, his son, Mohammad Reza, was raised in luxury and it showed. His son was also a key advisor to Reza Shah at this point, and when asked whether or not Iran should cut ties with Germany to prevent an Allied invasion, the young Mohammad Reza advised the Shah that the Allies had bigger fish to fry. There is no way they would take time out of their world war to attack Iran. Well, the title of this episode of Iranian history is titled, Iran Gets Invaded by the Allies. The Iranian army that Reza Shah had built up for years from nothing is quickly shattered under the weight of an invasion from both the Russians and the British. When they take over the country, the British initially want to put a member of the old Qajar dynasty back on the throne, but the only dummy they can scrounge up from that dynasty doesn't even speak Persian, so they have to change tactics. The Brits decide that in order to pull their Indiana Jones-style switcheroo, their sandbag of choice would be the distributor of terrible advice himself, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, turning him into the new Reza Shah. With the old Reza Shah removed, there is a power vacuum in Iranian politics. One similarity between Iran under Reza Shah and our politics here in the United States is that we both have a fucking useless representative body that was powerless to challenge the idiot in charge. In Iran, this is the Mahalis, and with Reza gone, they realize that this is their moment, this is their fight song, and they decide to try being in charge on Versailles. One of the laws the newly empowered Mahalis passed was a bill banning the sale of concessions and ordering the renegotiation of the concession that was given to the Anglo-Persian oil company. The bill was written by a rising star who is about to take center stage, Mohammad Mossadegh. Now this guy Mossadegh was a character and a half. He's a politician in the same mold as Cato in the, in the Roman Republic or Bernie Sanders in the United States. He is uncompromising and committed to his ideals with ideas that tug on the heartstrings of common people. Mossadegh sees foreign influence as the primary problem in Iran, which is 
been facilitated for hundreds of years by the corruption of the Shah. The country dominated Iran at this point is the British, so Mossadegh begins committing himself to uprooting their influence in order to free his country and place democratic government in charge over the Shah. Mossadegh rises to national prominence as a leader of a new party, the National Front. This party's goal is Iranian control over the oil industry of Iran, which means challenging the British and the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. In 1946, Iranian oil workers at the swampy oil refinery island at Abadan launch a strike, which the British callously break with foreign labor. Anger with the British influence in Iran rises because of this labor conflict and renewed negotiations of the deal between Anglo-Iranian and the government of Iran over payment. While this deal is being negotiated, the United States signs a deal sharing profits 50-50 with Saudi Arabia, way more than the 15-30% to that was on the table with the UK. UK refuses to consider a 50-50 deal. Then in January of 1951, this fervor allows the National Front to join forces with key religious figures who issue fatwas, or interpretations of Islamic law, in support of Muslim nationalization of the oil industry. This allows Mossadegh to gain power in the Mahalis and become prime minister, and he immediately seeks a vote to nationalize the oil industry, seizing everything from Britain and paying them a pittance to fuck off. Again, this might seem like an extreme step, but you gotta remember how shitty the British have treated them at every step. This is a problem completely of their own making, and when you treat people like garbage, it's hard to be surprised when one of them stabs you in the back. While this situation between Mossadegh and the British was developing, the situation looks completely different from the United States. In the 1950s, a new power was rising in American foreign policy, the Dulles Brothers. Foster Dulles was the older brother and was working as the Secretary of State and was deeply religious and a fervent anti-communist, seeing them as the root of many of the world's problems. The younger brother, Alan, was a social butterfly, famous for his classy parties and his womanizing habits, and was the head of the CIA. Both brothers had worked as lawyers, organizing massive deals to bring American companies all across the globe. They would frequently bring these business connections in when conducting foreign policy in ways that are wildly illegal now, but made them a shitload of money back in the day. The whole reason we have laws against government officials colluding with foreign governments is because of guys like these that would mix negotiating treaties and giving companies they are involved with sweet contracts. Now, the Dulles brothers are decidedly not a fan of Mossadegh. The younger brother, Alan Dulles, had set up a massive development deal between a company he was connected with and the Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. This was a big deal that was going to make the international finance companies that worked for a metric fuckload of money, but it all fell apart when an upstart populist in their parliament, the Mahalis, began giving rousing speeches against the plan as foreign interference. Mossadegh succeeded in getting the Mahalis to vote against funding the development project, effectively killing it. Allen's older brother, Foster, also had ties in Iran and was trying to get his client, Chase Bank, involved in the flow of American money to Iran. A year later, Mossadegh was chosen as the Prime Minister in 1951, but before he agreed to take the position, he put his main goal up for a vote to the Mahalis, should we nationalize the Anglo-Persian oil company, seizing the refineries and oil fields and kicking the British out of the country. 
The Mahalis unanimously voted to support nationalization, and Mossadegh accepted the position of prime minister and set out to seize the British oil. These actions went against the entire way that Foster Dulles, soon to be Secretary of State, saw the world. Foster was a fervent, big L liberal, which meant that he was very pro-business. He believed that the world works best when governments work on behalf of business to get them increasing power around the world. So for Foster, the idea of a country seizing foreign investment was horrible. Their own personal economic ties to American influence in Iran meant that they didn't even have to look past the effect on their own bank account for them to hate Mossadegh. If the Dulles brothers had stuck to their yachts and parties, then their hatred for Mossadegh might not have mattered. But unfortunately for Mossadegh, he had inadvertently pissed off the men that would form and dominate a shadow government that steered American foreign policy. See, America was going through a presidential election. Under Democratic President Harry S. Truman, the United States' Cold War policy was containment, the idea that we should strengthen countries that could fall to communism, but not directly attack communist states. Truman had been contacted by the British Intelligence Service, who were looking to plan a coup against Mossadegh. They gave Truman their Shark Tank pitch, was essentially that Britain had already lost India and was being pushed out of Africa, and they couldn't afford to lose both the prestige and the oil that would be lost if they couldn't dominate the Iranian government. Truman didn't give a shit about that pitch. He didn't think the U.S. should be involved in a foreign coup, and certainly didn't think that the United States should blow its international reputation trying to keep reluctant members of the British Empire under their control. This leaves the British completely up shit creek without a paddle until a new president is elected, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Eisenhower makes it very clear that he is not focused on domestic or economic issues. His sole focus is the Cold War. To push this policy, he hires as Secretary of State Foster Dulles, the religious anti-communist firebrand who had written a book about shifting U.S. policy from containment to liberation, taking the fight to the communists. This promotion was fortuitous because at the same time, Allen had been involved in setting up an intelligence service for the United States, and he was now in charge of the CIA. With this setup, the Dulles brothers' control of American foreign policy was almost absolute. For the British spies looking to get America involved in planning a coup against Mossadegh, this president change was a godsend, but they knew they would need to change tactics to get America on board. When they pitch Eisenhower and the Dulles brothers on their plan, gone are the mentions of British prestige and the need to keep their colonies. Now, Mossadegh has to go because of a new problem. Since his government was weak, he could fall to a communist revolution. This was a bullshit argument, and the British knew it. Mossadegh wasn't a communist sympathizer. He was a democratic capitalist with populist tendencies. There was a communist party in Iran known as Tude, Persian for the masses. Mossadegh had played up the threat of the Tude party when talking with Eisenhower to try and get aid from the United States, but this strategy backfired when the British brought forward their plan for a coup, because Eisenhower took the threat of Iran falling to communism very seriously. Eisenhower was at least a little convinced by this argument, and agreed to let the British and the CIA plan an operation against Mossadegh. By letting the plan go ahead, Eisenhower allowed the Dulles brothers to put the United States on a path towards collapsing a democratically elected government to put in a strongman dictator, 
a policy that would be repeated time and time again because of its perceived success. With the plan signed off on by the leaders of Britain and the United States, their intelligence agencies had the cash and the will to start disturbing some shit. The man chosen for the job was Kermit Roosevelt, a relative of Franklin Roosevelt. Kermit was deployed to the American Embassy in Tehran with millions of dollars and a cute name slapped on his operation, Operation Ajax for the Americans and Operation Boot for the British. So how do you collapse an open, democratic society with an elected leader that is beloved by his people and supported by a majority of the elected officials in the Mahalis? Well, step one is buying influence. You have to find a way to get enough control over the power brokers in Iran that you can discreetly throw your weight around and change things. For Kermit, this meant buying off a couple of groups. They paid members of the Mahalis to work against Mossadegh, resisting his legislative priorities and throwing his political priorities into deadlock. They targeted the religious leaders of the ulema, convincing powerful religious figures that had supported Mossadegh to give speeches agitating against him. They target the newspapers in Tehran, paying them to publish black propaganda that Mossadegh wanted to seize power himself and rule as a dictator backed by the communist two-day party. The most nefarious partner in their influence coalition was the Rashidan brothers, local agents that the British had developed before being kicked out of Iran that were experts at drawing crowds and had connections to criminal organizations. With the help of the Rashidan brothers, the CIA could now summon protests supporting a return to monarchy under the Shah, or they could summon protests disguised as the two-day communists, who would destroy things and attack people, to show that Mossadegh could not control the communists in his own country. With all of these sources of influence, the CIA was able to turn up the heat in the capital city of Tehran over time, with protests that border on riots and a firestorm of anti-government agitation from religious, political, and media leaders. If in this stage Mossadegh had acted like a true dictator and ordered the military to crush the protests and crushed civil rights, he might have held on to power. But Mossadegh believed in democracy and civil rights, so he allowed the chaos to continue because he assumed it was popular unrest, not foreign meddling. Step two to collapsing a government is sowing chaos. With all of these levers of power in the hands of the CIA, it gives them a significant ability to sow chaos in the Iranian political scene. Paid protesters went on rampages, destroying shops and attacking people. Mahali members broke laws and then hid in the Mahali chambers, where they were safe from the law. Because of this, Mossadegh was pushing to make more and more dictatorial decisions to regain control. In an effort to increase his power to work around the Mahalis before opposition to him grew, he asked them to grant him plenary powers, which is kind of like declaring a national emergency so that he as prime minister gets a bunch of power that can't be checked by the Mahalis. Because his enemies are using their status as elected members of the Mahalis to hide from him where the law cannot reach them, Mossadegh decides that he must replace these men, so he begins maneuvering to dissolve the Mahalis and call new elections. He orders all of his loyal Mahalis members to resign, and then calls a people's referendum to dissolve what was left. While this referendum passed with massive support, this step, along with Mossadegh's plenary powers, start to worry his allies and advisors. 
This was an unprecedented power grab by the Prime Minister, and the Constitution didn't allow the Mahalis to dissolve by popular referendum. Instead, the Mahalis could only be dissolved by the Shah. The other institution that the Shah had significant power in was the military, where the Shah was still considered the commander-in-chief. Both of these powers were dangerous for Mossadegh to let sit outside of his control. In order to seize this power and to establish his legitimacy to dissolve the Mahalis, Mossadegh started a conflict with the Shah over these powers. This feud is successful in that Mossadegh does dissolve parliament and makes himself head of the military, but these changes alienate the more conservative people of Iran. Sure, they don't want foreign influence, and they wanted democracy, but deposing the Shah was a bridge too far, and Mossadegh's supporters started to seriously question whether he represented them. Even without the swirl of black propaganda by the CIA that Mossadegh was secretly a baby-eating monster, it's easy to see why his support might have problems when Mr. Pro-Democracy looks like he's knocking out a king and replacing it with himself. Step three to taking down a government is providing a legitimate alternative. Chaos is comparatively easy to create, because it's way easier to destroy shit than it is to build something new. The real difficulty is when you've damaged the legitimacy of a bunch of traditional institutions, what do you transfer that legitimacy to? Because of Mossadegh's feud with the Shah, he became a lightning rod for the anti-Mossadegh energies that are being cooked up in all this chaos. This particular dynasty of Shahs, the Pahlavis, hasn't exactly ruled since the dawn of time. As we talked about in the previous podcast, the old Qajar dynasty had ruled for much longer, up until the Pahlavi dynasty took power in a foreign-supported coup in 1925. The current Shah had only ruled since the British had placed him on the throne after invading and deposing his father during World War II. But the Shah as an institution had existed since time immemorial so it made sense that the Shah was seen as a legitimate leader of the state. They also needed to convince others to support the Shah if they could get rid of Mossadegh, and for this, the CIA found support in the Iranian military, which had been traditionally led by the Shah. They found General Zahidi, a military leader willing to take active part in a coup against Mossadegh because it would guarantee him power in the new system. Stage 4 is setting up the coup. With chaos in the streets weakening Mossadegh's power and key power brokers across Iranian society brought into regime change, the CIA plotters only needed to seize Mossadegh himself to declare the coup accomplished and seize control of the country. They decided they would send soldiers to arrest Mossadegh while seizing key points of the city, like the radio stations. Unfortunately for the CIA, this part of the plan goes completely awry. Mossadegh is tipped off in advance, and some of the men sent to arrest key members of the government are themselves arrested. The coup was believed to be a complete failure, but Kermit Roosevelt continued pushing on the ground for those that he influenced to push the coup. While Kermit Roosevelt was working to try to still pull off the coup, Washington was trying to pull the plug on the whole operation because of its initial failure. They were sending orders to Kermit to evacuate the country, but he carried on with the secret agent equivalent of the new phone who dis maneuver. The CIA kicks into high gear, sponsoring anti-regime protests in the streets of Tehran. Kermit paid what they call black crowds, which would behave violently and shout slogans of their enemies, declaring allegiance to Mossadegh and to communism. 
These crowds would destroy things and attack people to further drive the people against the regime. Mossadegh was trying to maintain the image of a democratic state and so didn't send the police to crush the demonstrators. But complaints from the American embassy of U.S. citizens being attacked got Mossadegh to send out the police to attack the demonstrators, which had grown and attracted many of his nationalist supporters. So he sent them home and ordered the police to prevent them from demonstrating. At this moment, Kermit started dumping out money to get the biggest crowd they possibly could of people tired of the chaos and angry at the government. As they marched through the city, there were no counter-protests because the nationalists had been ordered to stay home and the communist Tude party had asked for weapons from Mossadegh, but he refused to arm the communist. Which, yeah, probably a good call there. But it meant that there was no group to stop this mob because the police were in the pay of the CIA. Kermit then got another message from Washington, ordering him to get out of the country, but by now, the tide had shifted. One of his Iranian contacts had seized the radio and began broadcasting that the government of Mossadegh had fallen. Didn't matter that that wasn't quite done yet, you just gotta tell people that it is. Eventually, they managed to get a group of soldiers with tanks moving towards Mossadegh's house. One of the generals on the CIA payroll was able to catch up to a group of soldiers moving to defend Mossadegh and talk them out of opposing the coup. So when anti-Mossadegh soldiers arrived at Mossadegh's house, they found it lightly defended. After a firefight, Mossadegh fled the house by climbing over the back wall. But with his base of support broken and the military interest in returning the Shah, there wasn't much Mossadegh could do. Eventually, he turned himself in, and the coup was declared a success. The Shah was called back to the country to take power and celebrate his victory. He was in Rome, resigned to living out his days with all the other exiled monarchs, playing bingo and crying while listening to the breakup songs and staring at maps of their old countries. When he heard that the protesters in the streets were toppling the government and calling for the Shah, he jumped to his feet and yelled, I knew it! They love me! And with that, the United States had pulled off their first Cold War regime change via covert operations. To the Dulles brothers running the CIA and the State Department, this meant that regime change black ops were now a reliable tool in the toolbox. Who needs diplomacy when you can just toss some money around and topple a government? To them, it's the perfect solution to a country heading towards communism and out of the United States orbit. And the great thing is that it has no downsides, just like building with asbestos or dumping nuclear waste. Yeah, except obviously it has a shitload of problems, they just didn't hit instantly. But like a big old building full of asbestos, the problems don't really appear until the Shah collapses, and it takes nearly 30 years. For those 30 years, the United States has a stable ally in the Shah, and we sell him weapons while ignoring his authoritarian oppression of any political de desires from his people. When the people boil over and overthrow the Shah in 1979, anger at America would be a large part of the revolution. They began referring to the United States as the Great Satan. When the revolution against the Shah begins, university students, who were fervent supporters of the revolution, rushed to the embassy to keep the Americans from running a counter-revolution, since the Shah had fled to the United States and President Jimmy Carter refused to return him to Iran and his likely death. Americans at the time were confused why the Iranians would attack the embassy. 
but that is where the CIA ran the overthrow of their last chosen government. Most people didn't know then, and still don't know, this story about why they don't like us. Even if the current Iranian regime disappeared one day, there would still be anti-American sentiment because of the moves we've made in the past. The real damage of overthrowing Mossadegh would not be realized till long after the Dulles brothers were out of power, but now we have to live with the results of their dumb decisions in our era. Iran is a rival of the United States because opposition to us was a core part of their current regime coming to power, and now we are a boogeyman to be used as a threat to keep the people unified against an opponent instead of protesting their government. When we make moves against them because Trump feels like his poll numbers are slipping, this plays right into this narrative. The United States government has battered the Iranian economy with sanctions, and it hasn't stopped them from developing a nuclear weapon or caused the people to overthrow their government. The situation as it stands today is a complete shitshow, and trying to reduce the tension in the relationship would require some deft diplomacy, like, I don't know, some kind of nuclear deal. We'd need to convince them that there's a reasonable path to peace without nuclear weapons, and that ending policies like sponsoring armed groups around the world would not result in a U.S. invasion. How the hell do you talk to someone into putting down a gun when you've shot them in the past, and you refuse to put down your gun because you don't trust them? This doesn't mean just open your heart and trust them based on their word. As the Russian saying that Reagan ripped off goes, trust but verify. But taking steps to reduce tension would require someone at the helm who doesn't hire John Bolton, who wants to just invade and topple Iran, and North Korea, too. John Bolton is a dumbass. As everyone's least favorite presidential candidate, Tulsi Gabbard, said a million times during the one debate she qualified for, regime change wars are dumb as hell. So that's the 1953 Iran Revolution. Boom.